So we're going to go ahead and start with a word of prayer, if you would please bow your heads. Father, we thank you for this chance to be able to gather in your name. We thank you for this terrific book. Lord, we pray that as we spend this time together looking at the words that Lewis wrote back in the 1940s, that we would see their fresh relevance for us today, and that when we see things that we need to apply in our lives, that you would give us the courage to do that. Lord, we thank you for this time and pray that you would be with us in it and pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, welcome everybody. Uh, we are broadcasting from home because the church internet died again today, uh, but hopefully our home service will hold up and we'll be all good. And I want to begin, as always, with our scripture verse. Uh, this verse is a great thing to come back to week after week, so I'd like to encourage you to say that with me. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And we certainly see that uh, there is much corruption in the world, there's much sinful desire in the world, but this verse is such a great reminder that God's promises are firm and steadfast and enable us to partake in his divine nature, which is something that is just an amazing and beautiful blessing. So uh, for those of you who are new, we're still getting new folks every week. Just a reminder, you can be on the beach in this class, which means you appear when you feel like it and you don't have to do a thing. And we're delighted to have you. You can just relax on the beach or you can be snorkeling. You can go deeper on those things that you think seem interesting, but not so much on the other stuff. If you're a scuba diver, that means you want to go and bore all the way down to the deepest level in some of those long scholarly articles that I will send out from time to time. And um, I'm delighted to have other people that maybe have a little bit of their inner nerd um, coming out uh, in the class. And then lastly, if you're not on my email list, please Google um, St. Philip's Church Charleston and send me a message, and I'll make sure that you're added. And again, just a reminder about how to read this book. Do not sit down and try to read this book all in one sitting. It is too much for anybody. But it's a great book to read out loud, a great book to read one chapter at a time, and the C.S. Lewis doodle uh, is a great study aid for that. So tonight uh, we have some music that I am virtually positive that no one has any idea what it will be. But sometimes y'all have proven me wrong before, so I'm going to try playing it and uh, We'll see whether anyone has an idea of what it is. It's hard to think of that day. We have to get past the little ad first. Good job. All right. 
not seeing a lot of guesses, so I'm going to go ahead and clue you in about what it is. And it is something that I will send out in the email uh, that I think is a great piece to look at. Um, it is by a composer that you may have heard of called Arvo Part. Arvo Part is a more contemporary composer um, from Estonia, and he is uh, deeply uh, committed to the Eastern Orthodox Church, and so he writes a lot of sacred music. But this particular piece is um, called Adam's Lament, and it is based on uh, some writing of a Russian saint called St. Silouis, who you've probably never heard of, uh, but it is a beautiful imagining of what Adam's response might have been as it begins to sink in in his mind and his heart what he has done and the, the sadness and desire to repent that would be part of that. And it fits beautifully with what Lewis is talking about in chapter five tonight. And it is a word that uh, we would do well in our cultural moment um, to heed. So uh, that will be something for you to look forward to. It's worth some meditation on the words. So just a quick review of context. Remember, we're in England in World War II. Uh, the blitz is going on, and Lewis is giving these talks over the BBC. We talked about Jimmy Welch, who's the one that really pushed to get Lewis a layman rather than a clergyman to do this. Lewis and his work with the Royal Air Force making him better at communicating with the common man. And then these two prefaces, the first one where he basically says that he is not anybody in particular uh, and has a very humble approach, uh, one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. And then the 1952 preface where he first uses the word mere Christianity in connection with these talks. So we've been looking at book one. There are several books, and the book one is the original section of the broadcast talks. And the whole focus of this section is the universal and ancient question of who are we? How did we come to be? How did the cosmos come to be? What essentially is the meaning of life? What does it mean to be human? How did we get here? Where did the world come from? And so Lewis gives this great title, Right and Wrong is a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. And so we went through the law of human nature, uh, talking about what that is, talked about some objections that Lewis had gotten in the mail. We talked about the reality of the law, what lies behind the law, this idea of a mind, and then we have cause to be uneasy, which is chapter five, which we did a quick run through um, at the end of class last week. So this week uh, we are gonna unpack that fifth chapter some more because it is unbelievably important in understanding not only the rest of this book, but about why this book is so important today. So just again, to quickly review uh, the law of human nature. There are two main points about that. Humans know the law of nature, they break it. We know what we're supposed to do, but most of the time, or at least often, we don't do it. 
And when we fail to do it, we have a whole list of excuses, as Lewis says, as long as your arm. Uh, and it's different than like the law of gravity that natural objects have to obey because they have no choice. But we do have this law and we can choose whether to obey or not. Uh, one of the things Lewis says in the chapter on some objections is the law of human nature is a truth, not a convention. It's not like driving on one side of the road versus the other. It's not like where you put your hands on the dinner table, uh, customs and manners, but instead it is something that is a standard that is deeply embedded in the human heart. And as he says, if your moral ideas can be truer and those of the Nazis less true, there must be something, some real morality for them to be true about. And some of you will remember the analogy Lewis used about New York City. And he said, two people can both imagine in their minds what New York City is like. But because New York City is a real place, and you get the people to describe what they imagined, you can easily see which one is more correct because New York is a real place. It is a point of reference. So the third chapter, he talks about the reality of the law, how men do behave versus how men ought to behave. That it's not a law saying what human beings in fact do, because although we do the right thing sometimes, we don't always. Anybody who's like me and doesn't always pay strict attention to the speed limit, um, whenever you see a black and white car parked on the side of the road with uh, sirens that are not yet turned on, you realize that your behavior needs to change quickly and you hit those brakes. And you weren't thinking, oh, I'm in a glorious state of sin and rebellion. You just are driving along and not paying attention. So the fourth chapter, What Lies Behind the Law, Lewis says that this law of human nature, the law of right and wrong, has to be something above and beyond our actual facts of human behavior. It's something we did not invent, and yet it's something that we know we ought to obey. And so then he talked about the different views of reality, the materialist view uh, that everything just evolved from the primal goo uh, in some sort of miraculous way. Uh, the one that I think I said last time is uh, the odds of that happening are the same kind of odds if you put a couple of dozen monkeys in front of typewriters on an airport runway and they all just happened to type out the complete works of Shakespeare. Highly unlikely that that's going to happen. So there's a lot of faith, actually, in the materialist view about how the, all these natural things come to pass. Then the religious view that there's a creator, that there's a mind, that there's a design to the universe, and then the whole role of science. And in the last email, I sent you some attachments, if you're snorkeling or scuba diving, about John Polkinghorne, uh, one of the great uh, particle physicist of the 20th century, who's also a devout Christian, who I think can really help us uh, understand what Lewis means about the proper role of science. And Lewis uses the phrase inside information here that he says we can't get inside a stone or a tree because we're not stones or trees. 
but we are men and women. And so we can get inside and we can look at the way our behavior works. And so when we do that, we find that there is a director or a guide uh, giving us the sense of right and wrong. So the fifth chapter, we have cause to be uneasy. And as I said last week, I sort of sneaked this in uh, on you without telling you we were doing the fifth chapter, but I wanted to lay the groundwork so we can unpack it in more detail tonight. So we have cause to be uneasy is kind of a scary title. None of us wants to be uneasy. We want to be happy and calm and comfortable. But Lewis says we have cause to be uneasy. And we're going to talk about why we should be uneasy, even those of us who are Christians at this moment. Um, there are some reasons to be uneasy. So Lewis addresses directly the people listening to the broadcast. And he says, you may have felt you were ready to listen to me as long as you thought I had anything new to say. But if it turns out to be only religion, well, the world has tried that and you cannot put the clock back. So Lewis is hitting at something here that I think is really important, that as soon as people think you're talking about religion, they want to tune you out, turn you off, turn off the speaker, change the subject, whatever it might be. And the reason for that is, um, particularly in this day and age where we're talking about the vaccine so much, vaccines work by giving you a little bit of a disease to inoculate you against it. And for many people, that is what has happened with the, the Christian faith. They have gotten just a little bit of Christianity, not enough to really understand it or be transformed by it, and seen that it didn't make much difference, and so they think they know all about it and have rejected it. So we're gonna talk more about that, but Lewis has three things that he wants to say about putting the clock back. And the first thing it goes to this idea of progress, which is one of the things he loves to talk about. First, as to putting the clock back, would you think I was joking if I said that you can put a clock back and that if the clock is wrong, it is often a very sensible thing to do. And any of you that have had an old grandfather clock or a wall clock where the battery dies, you know that you can put a clock back and get it to keep correct time. But Lewis says he'd rather get away from the whole idea of clocks. He says everybody wants progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place that you want to be. And if you've taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. And if you've taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you nearer and you're on the wrong road. If you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. Lewis says this a different way in another book. And he says, if everybody, if there's a huge crowd running toward a cliff and you're running in the opposite direction, people think you're the one who's crazy. But he said, in fact, if people are running off a cliff, you don't want to run with them because they're going in the wrong direction. So having the courage to turn around is the most progressive thing that you can do. 
He also uses this analogy about arithmetic. And as I said last week, I know some of you are triggered when the word arithmetic shows up, uh, but try, try to get past that. He's just saying here that when you start a sum the wrong way, the sooner you admit that you're doing it the wrong way and start over, the faster you will be able to succeed. There's nothing progressive about being pigheaded and refusing to admit a mistake. Now, I will admit there are some times when I've been pigheaded and don't want to admit making a mistake, but that is not a salutary quality. And if you look at the present state of the world, and Lewis is saying this in the 1940s, it's pretty plain humanity has been making some big mistake. We're on the wrong road, and if that is so, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. So that moves him to the evidence. And he wants to be very clear here. He says, we, that means him, and his uh, fellow journeyers going along with him, we are not taking anything from the Bible or the churches. You'll notice Lewis has scrupulously avoided that in this first book. We are trying to see what we can find out about this somebody, the mind behind everything, on our own steam. And I want to make it quite clear that what we find out on our own steam is something that gives us a shock. And we have two bits of evidence about that somebody. And the shock is something he really wants you to feel. So the first bit of evidence is the universe he has made. And Lewis says, if we use the universe as our only clue, we should have to conclude that the mind, the somebody, was a great artist. Because the universe is a very beautiful place. When you look at things like the ocean and the Grand Canyon and trees and flowers and all of that there's a lot of beauty but also that he's quite merciless and no friend to man because the universe is a very dangerous and terrifying place think of blizzards think of hurricanes think of earthquakes there are all sorts of things that are really really frightening that are part of the universe so the second bit of evidence is the moral law, this rule of right behavior that we find inside our minds. And he says this is better evidence than the universe because it's inside information. He says you find out more about God from the moral law than from the universe in general, just as you find out more about a man by listening to his conversation than by looking at a house he has built. And this next part is something that's really important. He says, the moral law does not give us any grounds for thinking that God is good in the sense of being indulgent or soft or sympathetic. There's nothing indulgent about the moral law. It is hard as nails. It tells you to do the straight thing, and it does not seem to care how painful or dangerous or difficult it is to do. If God is like the moral law, then he is not soft. It is no use at this stage saying that what you mean by a good God is a God who can forgive. You are going too quickly. Only a person, somebody with personality, can forgive. And yet we have not yet got as far as a personal God, only as far as a power behind the moral law, and more like a mind than it is like anything else. 
but it may still be very unlike a person. If it is a pure and personal mind, there may be no sense in asking it to make allowances for you or let you off, just as if there's no sense in asking the multiplication table to let you off when you do your sums wrong. You're bound to get the wrong answer. And it's no use either saying that if there is a God of that sort, an impersonal absolute goodness, then you do not like him and you are not going to bother about him. And I think Lewis hit something really important here that I think is something that is even more true now than it was when he wrote this. And part of that is the idea of God as this sort of indulgent, soft, sweet little old man. And it reminds me, um, if you are young enough to have young children uh, in the past decade around your house or grandchildren, you have probably heard, unless you've been living under a rock, of the movie Frozen. The movie Frozen is one of Disney's big hits, and it takes place in this kingdom where there are two princesses, the little girls love to dress up like them. But one of the characters in this story is Olaf the Snowman. And he's so cute. He is just this really cute little snowman who's kind of plump and he's always smiling. And he walks up to people and says, hi, my name is Olaf. I love warm hugs. And I'm afraid that that is the way a lot of people think about God. That is the way they think about this mind, that he's kind of like Olaf the snowman, that he's just waiting for a warm hug. And um, particularly based on the evidence that Lewis has marshaled so far, that is a very distorted image. Because as Lewis says, there's nothing indulgent about the moral law. It is as hard as nails. It tells you to do the straight thing, and it does not seem to care how painful or dangerous or difficult it is to do. Lewis goes on to say, for the trouble is that one part of you is on his side and really agrees with his disapproval of human greed and trickery and exploitation. You want him to make an exception in your own case to let you off this one time, but you know at bottom that unless the power behind the world really and unalterably detests that sort of behavior, then he cannot be good. On the other hand, we know that if there does exist an absolute goodness, it must hate most of what we do. So that leads to our predicament. That is the terrible fix we're in. If the universe is not governed by an absolute goodness, then all our efforts are in the long run hopeless. Imagine something like a sci-fi novel where the whole universe is run by an evil power like Darth Vader or something like that. That would not be uh, a universe you would want to live in. But if it is governed by absolute goodness, then we are making ourselves enemies to that goodness every day and are not in the least likely to do any better tomorrow. And so our case is hopeless again. We cannot do without it. We cannot do with it. God is the only comfort. He's also the supreme terror, the thing we most need 
and the thing we most want to hide from, think of Adam and Eve in the garden. Lewis wouldn't say that because that's from the Bible and he's not there yet, but I can say it because we're after the fact. But that's exactly what happened with Adam and Eve. God is the one they love more than anything and know that they need, but they have sinned and they want to hide themselves from him. He is our only possible ally and we've made ourselves his enemies. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They are still only playing with religion. Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger, according to the way you react to it. And we have reacted the wrong way. Now my third point. When I chose to get to my real subject in this roundabout way, I was not trying to play any kind of trick on you. I had a different reason. My reason was that Christianity simply does not make any sense until you have faced the sort of facts that I have been describing. And this leads to his key realization. It is only after you've realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind the law and that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power it is after all this, and not a moment sooner, that Christianity begins to talk. When you know you are sick, you will listen to the doctor. When you have realized that our position is nearly desperate, you will begin to understand what the Christians are talking about. Now, I want to give you a really bad analogy right here that I hope will be helpful um, it's not one that Lewis would probably like very much, but just imagine that you are a small child of around 10 years old and you just love chocolate chip cookies and you go to your grandmother's house where you're staying for a week and the first day that you're there, you spot this big jar full of chocolate chip cookies and it's a jar that's not see-through it's uh, made out of pottery so you have to take the top off to see how many cookies are in there and so as you walk around your grandmother's house because your grandmother loves to read and watch tv and doesn't go in the kitchen much you help yourself to one after another after another after another of chocolate chip cookies and they are so good. And so you go to bed that first night and you think, I ate 10 chocolate chip cookies today. It's wonderful. And tomorrow I'm going to get up and I'm going to do it again. So you get up the next morning and after your grandmother starts watching TV, you start eating chocolate chip cookies again. And you go on and on with this for several days, thinking this is the greatest thing in the world. But then, oh dear, but then, the key realization happens on Thursday, when you've eaten about 40 chocolate chip cookies, the realization happens when your grandmother says to you, I baked six dozen chocolate chip cookies and I counted them all out before I put them in the cookie jar so that when your cousins come this weekend, each one of the six of you will have an even dozen.
Well, at that point, your blissful ignorance about consuming all of these chocolate chip cookies turns to abject horror because you know that your grandmother, force of goodness and great chocolate chip cookie maker though she be, when she opens that cookie jar and discovers that instead of 72 cookies, there are only 32 and you're the only two people in the house, she's going to know where they went and she is not going to be happy. And that's exactly what Lewis is saying here, that we are like the child going around eating out of the cookie jar, thinking it doesn't really matter, and just living blissfully, thinking we can keep on doing that. But the instant that we realize that there is a real power and a real law who knows what we've been doing and we have been caught out, we are desperate. As he says, when you know you're sick, you'll listen to the doctor. And when you realize your position is nearly desperate, you will begin to understand what the Christians are talking about. And he says, Christians offer an explanation of how we got into our present state of both hating goodness and loving it. They offer an explanation of how God can be this impersonal mind at the back of the moral law and yet also a person. They tell you how the demands of this law, which you and I cannot meet, have been met on our behalf. How God himself becomes a man to save man from the disapproval of God. It is an old story, and if you want to go into it, you will no doubt consult people who have more authority to talk about it than I have. And he says all he wants people to do is to face the facts, just like the child that realizes they've eaten the 40 cookies and the grandmother is on the way to count. All I'm doing is ask people to face the facts, to understand the questions which Christianity claims to answer. And they are very terrifying facts. I wish it was possible to say something more agreeable. But I must say what I think is true. Of course, I quite agree that the Christian religion is, in the long term, a thing of unspeakable comfort. But it does not begin in comfort. It begins in the dismay I have been describing, and it is no use at all trying to go on to that comfort without first going through the dismay. In religion, as in war and everything else, comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. And I have to say, I think he is right on the mark there that we are in an age seeking for comfort, comfort of every kind imaginable, whether it's physical comfort, mental comfort, whatever it might be, that is one of the chief goals of many people's lives. And the problem is that people are looking, as we say, looking for love in all the wrong places. And when they do that, the result is that they end up in despair. So what we're going to do now is to look at some implications of this. So we're going to uh, look at trying to apply some of what Lewis has been talking about in this first book to our current situation. 
And in order to do that, I want to go way back to the exchange of letters that we talked about earlier between Jimmy Welch and Lewis about what they were trying to do with these broadcast talks. So Jimmy Welch wrote Lewis this, in a time of uncertainty and questioning, does that sound like a time we could relate to? In a time of uncertainty and questioning, it is the responsibility of the church and of religious broadcasting as one of its most powerful voices to declare the truth about God and his relation to men. It has to expound the Christian faith in terms that can be easily understood by ordinary men and women and to examine the ways in which that faith can be applied to present-day society during these difficult times. And what I want us to notice here is that even though he's talking about what Lewis is going to do with the BBC here, that the first thing he says it's the responsibility of is whom? The church. And if we are Christians, we are the church. So he's talking to us. It's our responsibility to expound the Christian faith in terms that can be easily understood by ordinary men and women and how it applies to our society in these difficult times. That's a big job. And it's one where the church arguably, I think, is more needed today to be able to speak into our culture than at any time, certainly in my lifetime. And Lewis wrote back, it seems to me that the New Testament, by preaching repentance and forgiveness, always assumes an audience who already believe in the law of nature and know they have disobeyed it. In modern England, we cannot at present assume this, and therefore most apologetic begins at a stage too far on. The first step is to create or recover the sense of guilt. Hence, if I gave a series of talks, I should mention Christianity only at the end and would prefer not to unmask my battery till then. And battery, by that he means his offensive weapons. And that's exactly what we've just seen Lewis do. Build this case without mentioning Christianity till the very end. And what he's saying is that until there's an understanding of the need for repentance and forgiveness, Christianity doesn't make sense to people. If they think they are the greatest thing since sliced bread, they are horribly insulted by the idea that they might need to repent of anything. And part of the problem is that some of the church has bought into this. And Bishop Salmon used to say uh, on a regular basis, Bishop Salmon, for those of you who are not from here, uh, was the bishop of our diocese in South Carolina um, until I guess about 10 years ago. And Bishop Salmon used to say that the problem is that Christianity is a religion of faith that involves repentance, forgiveness, and a new life. And the problem is that we want to exchange that for an I'm okay, you're okay, let's affirm everything about everyone, and then we'll all be happy. And he says those are so diametrically opposed um, that they can't be the same faith. So what Lewis is saying here is radical. Imagine going onto a college campus today and saying to people, you all need to recover a sense of guilt. 
students are taught, young people are taught that guilt is bad. You should never feel guilt. If somebody's making you feel guilty, then they're oppressing you. But the fact of the matter is, if you were that child that was taking those cookies and then your grandmother told you that she had counted how many were in the jar and she was coming to the kitchen, you're going to feel, well, you may be feeling terror first, but you're also going to be feeling guilt. And you should be because you did something wrong. And it is just like that beautiful parable that Jesus gives in the Gospels about two men who went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And he says, the Pharisee stood in front of the altar and said, I thank thee, O God, that I am not like other men. I give a tithe of all that I possess. I am certainly a good person and most certainly not like that dirty tax collector over there in the corner. And the tax collector fell on his face and would not even approach the altar and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says it is this latter man, the tax collector, who went home justified before God. And that tax collector had a sense of guilt. He had a sense that he needed to be forgiven. And the great good news is guilt is not the end of the story. There is plentiful forgiveness and redemption in the blood that has been shed by Jesus Christ, but we have to know that we need that. So I want us to look at a couple of definitions here. Um, The first is the definition of guilt. The fact of being responsible for the commission of an offense, moral culpability, and that comes from the good old Latin culpa fault, you will remember, if you've been in a Catholic church or a high Anglican church and the Latin mass, the mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, through my own fault, my own fault, my own most grievous fault. So moral culpability. And then legally, guilt is the fact of having been found to have violated a criminal law, legal culpability, or the grandma cookie jar kind of culpability, found Uh, to have violated the rules. And then lastly, responsibility for a mistake or error. And then a second definition, a painful emotion experienced when one's beliefs, one's actions or thoughts have violated a moral or personal standard. So then we get to the definition of sin. And again, you'll see a lot of theologians who are very liberal today saying sin is an outmoded construct. Well, let me be very clear. Sin is not an outmoded construct. Uh, It is part and parcel of the story of Scripture from the beginning of Genesis right through the book of Revelation. Sin, uh, which literally means missing the mark like an archery term, is defined as an offense against religious or moral law an action that is or is felt to be highly reprehensible, an often serious shortcoming or transgression of the law of God. But what I would like to suggest to you is that our understanding of sin, particularly in the church, is very flawed. Our cultural understanding is very flawed because a lot of people in the culture want to say there's no such thing as sin. Whatever you want to do, if you're sincere, it's all good. How could anyone 
say that you're wrong. That is oppression. But the fact of the matter is in the church, we're confused as well. Because when we think about sin, we want to think about those sins that all those other people do. Those people that are taking those terrible positions on moral issues, or those people that are in this protest or that protest, it doesn't really matter which side, just the one that you're not on. We want to say all those people are sinners, and we Christians, well, we don't do that anymore. But the problem with that is that if you will sit down and read a gospel all the way through, which I would strongly encourage you to do if you've never done it, you will notice that Jesus is dogged through his entire ministry by the church people, the Pharisees, and the people who are the ones that think all the rest of the world is sinners and they are righteous, and they are full of pride or hubris, I'm not talking about the pride here by being proud of your child or proud of a, an accomplishment, but more hubris conceit. And that definition is dangerously corrupt selfishness. The putting of one's own desires, urges, wants, and whims before the welfare of other people. Irrationally believing that one is essentially and necessarily better, superior, or more important than others. Failing to acknowledge the accomplishments of others. Dante, uh, in his great work, The Inferno and the Divine Comedy, um, talking about pride as the most deadly of the sins, he defines pride as love of self perverted to hatred and contempt for one's neighbor. And I would like to suggest to you that we are, in our cultural moment, seeing one of the most great, great displays of pride and hubris on the part of virtually every sector of our culture. Um, it really is just quite astounding. And Lewis, later in Mere Christianity, has an entire chapter about pride, which is one of the seven deadly sins, and why he thinks it's the most dangerous. So we're going to look at a little reflection on that. He says, why does Lewis see pride as the greatest sin, the utmost evil, in comparison with which unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites? That's a great image. Uh, Lewis always has a gift for these. Flea bites? Yes, flea bites. Other vices, including unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and so on, are mere flea bites, tiny little offenses in comparison to pride. Lewis gives three reasons for laboring pride as the supreme defect. First, because the devil became the devil by pride. Second, because pride is the cause of every other vice. And third, because pride is the complete anti-God and anti-other state of mind. Pride is severely disordered love for self. Let me say that again. Pride is severely disordered love for self. And let me just pause to say, as we've talked about before, we are living in the midst of an epidemic of narcissism. The American Psychological Association says narcissism, uh, the disorder of thinking you are the center of the universe, has never been higher since they've been keeping records. 
if you look around, severely disordered love for self is behind so much of what we see in our culture today. When it comes to the vices, then pride is at the very center. Lewis says it's the essential vice, the utmost evil. Pride is always competitive. It always enjoys power. It fosters enmity between us and others and between us and God. Indeed, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. Pride can even smuggle its way into our religious life. The devil might even erect within us a dictatorship of pride. It is demonic, a spiritual cancer. And when you live in a culture where there is so much division and hatred and so much assertion of, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, they're wrong, and they're not just wrong, they're evil. Um, When you get all of that kind of shouting at each other, one of the things that tells you is that there is a lot of pride that has worked its way into the midst of things. So I want to do a little shift that's not really a shift to a wonderful little book by Tim Keller, the Presbyterian minister and author. And this little book is called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, The Path to True Christian Joy. Now you'll notice self-forgetfulness might be construed as the opposite of pride. And Tim Keller, who is one of the greatest Christian scholars that there is right now, says that he really believes that this is the cornerstone of where the church has gone wrong, that we've lost this concept of self-forgetfulness. So he starts with two questions, and these are questions for the church, for us, for those of us who are the church people. What are the marks of a heart that has been radically challenged by the grace of God? That's an important question. And then, if we trust in Christ, what should our hearts be like? In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says there's to be no pride, no boasting, which raises the issue of humility. Keller connects us to self-esteem. He notes that there are two different and equally incorrect responses over the years to self-esteem. Up until the 20th century, traditional cultures, and it's still true of most cultures in the world, always believed that too high a view of yourself was the root cause of evil in the world. Um, Those of us who are older or who had elder relatives in our lives will remember being talked to about not being conceited, about not getting a big head, um, about being uh, courteous toward others, about looking to respect others, all of that. That a view of yourself that was too high would cause all manner of problems. However, we flipped 180 degrees so that our belief today, which is deeply rooted in everything, is that people misbehave for lack of self-esteem and because they have too low a view of themselves. And so we are supposed to be all about telling people how wonderful they are all the time. And don't get me wrong, biblical encouragement is a really good thing, but that's not what he's talking about here. This is talking about everybody gets a trophy for being the best player on the team. This is the charter school for self-esteem that um, one of my nephews went to in California, and that was the mandate of the school, just so they would all have great self-esteem. 
And the problem with that is that it's empty and that when you have that kind of self-esteem, the only way that you can hold on to it is to think that you're better than somebody else. And if anybody challenges your self-esteem, then you're triggered. So Keller quotes Lewis's brilliant observation in Mere Christianity about gospel humility, which Keller says is the right view of self-esteem. So Lewis says this, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that of course he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. The thing that we would remember from such a meeting of somebody who's truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. True gospel humility, thinking of myself less. A truly gospel humble person is not a self-hating person or a self-loving person, but a gospel humble person. The truly gospel humble person is a self-forgetful person whose ego is just like his or her toes. It just works. It does not draw attention to itself. The toes just work. The ego just works. Neither draws attention to itself. Here is one little test. The self-forgetful person would never be hurt particularly badly by criticism. It would not devastate them or keep them up late or bother them. Why? Because a person who's devastated by criticism is putting too much value on what other people think, on other people's opinions. The world tells us the person who is thin-skinned and devastated by criticism to deal with it by saying, who cares what they think? I know what I think. Who cares what the rabble thinks? It doesn't bother me. People are either devastated by criticism or they're not devastated because they don't listen to it. They won't listen to it or learn from it because they don't care about it. They know who they are and what they think. In other words, our only solution to low self-esteem is pride. But that is no solution. Both low self-esteem and pride are horrible nuisances to our own future and to everyone around us. And I'm not going to go off on this, but I want you to just think about the whole concept of safe space. Think of the whole concept of there are certain things you can't talk about because people will be triggered and they will be upset. That is exactly what he's talking about here. So the next paragraph, the person who is self-forgetful is the complete opposite. When someone whose ego is not puffed up, but filled up, that is filled up by Christ, gets criticism, it does not devastate them. They listen to it and see it as an opportunity to change. That's a huge statement. Sounds idealistic? The more we get to understand the gospel, the more we want to change. Blessed self-forgetfulness is the manifestation of gospel humility. 
This is gospel humility, blessed self-forgetfulness. Not thinking more of myself, as in modern cultures, or less of myself in traditional cultures, simply thinking of myself less. According to Paul, how does one do this? How does one manifest gospel humility by thinking of myself less? It is only through Jesus Christ, in whom we move out of the courtroom, and by which we receive the verdict before the performance. But Paul says he has found the secret. The trial is over for him. He's out of the courtroom. It's gone. It is over because the ultimate verdict is in. Now, how could that be? Paul puts it very simply. He knows that they cannot justify him. He knows he cannot justify himself. And what does he say? He says, it is the Lord who judges him. It is only his opinion that counts. Jesus' death on the cross as an atonement for our sins is the reason that we don't have to be in the court. Jesus has cleared the docket. He is the evidence and the verdict so that we stand before God guiltless, not because of who we are, but because we are covered by Christ. So let me just pause for a moment here um, and begin to try to wrap this up. Part of the reason this is so important is that until we get as Christians to a place of gospel humility, the culture is not going to want to hear what we have to say. And as Lewis said at the beginning of the chapter, a lot of people have been inoculated about religion. They think they know what religion means, and they think that what it means is judgment and intolerance and hypocrisy. And so we as the church have to figure out how to get around that. And part of what our culture would tell us is we need to shout more and make a bigger noise about ourselves, and that somehow if we shout past each other, um, the one with the loudest voice wins. But what you see from Jesus' example is this example of gospel humility. And I think one of the things that's a great uh, lesson from Lewis and uh, Tolkien and their friends is this whole idea of story as a bridge in a deaf culture. And this is a little uh, excerpt from the theologian Alistair McGrath. And he says, each of us naturally lives within a story, a meta-narrative that shapes our lives, whether we're aware of it or not. Some of us live under the assumptions of the Western story of societal progress, that civilization technologically, socially, or morally is continually improving. Others live under the story of individual progress of the sort peddled on daytime talk shows, that the self is the most important thing there is, and that more or better information will organically produce better selves. Still others subscribe to the victim meta-narrative, that their personal choices have little impact on the world they live in. So again, Lewis asks us, which story are you in? Have you chosen your story wisely? Have you challenged the story you tell yourself if it doesn't align with reality? And this is a great question to ask to people if we have begun to build relational bridges to people who think differently from us. And let me just emphasize again that if we don't build those relational bridges, there's no way that any of this can happen. Uh, unless we're in relationship with other beggars, we can't tell them where the bread is. 
Lewis believed a good story could captivate the imagination and sneak past the watchful dragons of dogmatic rationalism, or you could substitute for that political correctness. And in writing to his friend Roger Green, Lewis talked about writing his science fiction books as a mythology that could be harnessed to convey the truth of the Christian worldview. So he wrote these books to show up secular evolutionary optimism as lightweight and naive and highlight the darker side of human nature. The ideas that he develops are interesting, but it's more interesting that instead of using a sustained logical argument that tells why secular humanism is wrong, he uses instead a winsome story that shows the same thing. So again, McGrath says, you can't have it both ways. You can't say we're here by accident, meaningless products of a random universe. We can only invent meaning and purpose in life and do our best to stay alive, even though there's no point. And at the same time say, we're precious creatures of a loving God who created for us for something special we're asked to do. We have the privilege of being able to do good and experience purpose as we live by faith in Christ and his kingdom. So those things are wildly opposite. And most people, when you point out to them that their worldview basically says there's no point to life, find that that's discouraging. And when they see joy and hope and humility in the lives of Christians, they're curious. And Lewis does a wonderful job of showing this in the Narnia stories. So you'll notice in those books, if you remember The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there are immediately two views of reality about Narnia. Is Narnia really the realm of Jadis the Queen, who's the rightful ruler of Narnia? Or is Jadis the White Witch a usurper in Narnia, which is really the realm of the mysterious great and noble lion Aslan. They can't both be true. One must be true and the other must be false. People who would never talk to you about their worldview and what's right and what's wrong would love to talk to you about the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe and what they think about it. It's a great tool. Our world is often inoculated against the claims of the gospel and at a more basic level against logical argument, even from a skilled logician with brilliant analogies like Lewis. However, the power of story can open the most closed heart and mind. So if you have friends that you have differences with, a great thing to do is to read one of these books together and then talk about what did you, who did you admire in that story and why? What are the major themes that make that story beautiful? And what you'll see is you'll see characters who model self-sacrifice and gospel humility. You will see themes of love and forgiveness and reconciliation, repentance. You will see people that learn and grow and become better. The power of beauty and transcendence can also be a means of opening the door. And this happens regularly at St. Philip's. Um, people come to worship that have never been to the kind of worship that we do at St. Philip's, and they are touched by the Holy Spirit, by the beauty and the sense of something that's holy there that they've never experienced before. So part of our job as Christians is to learn to become translators of spiritual truth, the truth of the gospel for a culture that no longer speaks our language. 
So sorry for preaching a little bit there, uh, but that's part of the way I think that we need to apply this book. And I think if we can get a hold of this and get a hold of the idea of gospel humility and stop worrying about how bad all those other people are that are tearing apart our culture and start focusing instead on the log in our own eye and begin to reach out in love and gospel humility and build bridges, we might be amazed what could happen. So let's close with this great passage uh, that... uh, fits very well with this whole idea of humility. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him everything else thrown in. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, we thank you that Jesus did not come in pomp and splendor to save the world, but in humility and loneliness and gospel humility, seeking to be a servant. Lord, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to understand not only the pride of the world that we live in, but the own spiritual pride in our own lives that prevents us from being the winsome gospel humble people that you desire. Lord, we pray that you would help us to build bridges to this hurting culture, to the people in our lives who are hurting, um, even though they may not show it on the surface, but Lord, who need your saving embrace. Lord, we thank you for C.S. Lewis and for this great work And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have just a few minutes, even though I ran a little bit over. Sorry about that since we started a little bit late. Uh, But if anybody has any questions or comments, um, I'm happy to hear those. Um, If not, that is perfectly fine, too. Um, You could send me a chat or you could raise your hand and unmute yourself. Um, But I do think I realized tonight was like drinking from a fire hydrant. Um, There was a lot of stuff in there to think about. So I'd commend to you to go back and reread and maybe even re-listen, if you can stand that, uh, to uh, look a little bit at what Lewis is trying to get at here. I have a question, Brian. Yes. About guilt. And you were talking about recover a sense of guilt. Uh, Can there be a misuse of guilt in the church? Yes, absolutely. That is such a great question. I'm very glad you asked that. So there is a distinction between what I would call true guilt and false guilt. So true guilt is uh, what you might also call guilt unto repentance, where you have uh, fallen short of uh, 
what God wanted from you. And that may be having disobeyed some precept of moral law, it may be having wronged another person, um, any of the things that are talked about in our confession uh, in church, any of those things that you've done that you feel badly about um, and that you need to repent of, that would be the right use of guilt. It is between you and God. It is not guilt to be put on you by other people. So there can be misuse of guilt when there are other people who are trying to make you feel guilty about something. That is not their role. That is a role that is reserved for the Holy Spirit. The third type of, um, well, there are two types of false guilt. So the third type of guilt um, that's false would be guilt that comes from Satan. And we talked a little bit about this in Screwtape. Uh, and that is the kind of guilt that says, what you did was so bad, even though you confess that to Jesus and say he forgave you, God doesn't really love you anymore. He rejects you. And how dare you go back to him on your knees about anything? That is false guilt. And that guilt can also manifest by trying to earn your way back to God by thinking that if you just do enough good things, it will make up for um, how bad you really were. But th that, again, is false guilt. False guilt um, in either of those circumstances is something that will drive you away from the embrace of Jesus, whereas true guilt sends you to that embrace. And um, when you meditate on the, uh, the Adam's Lament, the music, and look at the words to that, that is a beautiful example, along with Psalm 51, of what true um, biblical guilt is. So that's a great question. That could be a really long sermon. That was a really short answer, uh, but I hope that helps. Thank you. I appreciate that. Sure. Other questions? Um, so I see that there is another um, comment about how do we try to instill true humility in ourselves and our children and our grandchildren? And that, again, is such a great question. Uh, one of the wonderful ways to do that is to find stories that are good examples of that and talk about them. The Chronicles of Narnia are great on that uh, because you've got uh, people on both extremes. So you've got the good example to follow and the bad example not to emulate. But one of the best ways is to learn to, in your own life, try to have a focus on others. And part of what that means is to learn to ask questions about other people, to ask them about their experiences, to ask them about what they love, what brings them joy, all of those kinds of things. Um, and if our children see us modeling that, that will really help. Um, another way that can be a very good way to instill that is to do uh, service together. And that can be all sorts of things. It can be something um, like going to Tri-County Family Ministries and helping with a meal or helping in the uh, pantry or the clothes closet. But it can also be uh, modeling writing thank you notes and talking about why that's so important. Um, there are you know, so many things, and a lot of it is that old adage of that it is what is caught is more important than what is taught, but I would say they're both important. 
Um, and one person has just suggested William Bennett's Book of Virtues uh, is a great book to help with that as well. But I think being mindful of it, um, praying for people with your children and grandchildren is another great way. Um, and just asking God to help you cultivate a servant heart uh, can be a wonderful thing. That's a great question. Other questions or comments? All right, well, hearing none, um, I will close us with another prayer in just a moment, but I just want to give you a little preview. We are about to switch gears into a different section of the book about what Christians believe, um, and it is wonderful stuff. So if you uh, know somebody that you think might need a refresher in that, um, please feel free to invite them. Uh, we have a lot of people that are also following us on the uh, YouTube channel um, because they can't come to the Zoom class. So that's always an option as well. So thank y'all so much for being here. And um, let me close again just with a quick prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. I pray your blessing on these, your servants that have devoted this time to this material tonight. Lord, we pray that you would use this time and use our reflections and the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts to draw us more and more toward your kingdom. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all so much. It's great to be with you. God bless you and see you next week. Thank you.